0: Are you a clinician in primary care who wishes there were better resources to help you understand how to navigate the concept of triage in modern general practice? We'll boost your triage skills with our dynamic five-session live webinar course tailored for primary care clinicians. Led by myself and Dr. Ed Pooley from Difficult Conversations, this comprehensive training covers all facets of remote patient triage, whether that be digital, on-call or other opportunities. Through this course, you'll gain practical knowledge, exclusive hints and tips, and direct access to myself and Ed through open Q&A sessions of the course. Elevate your ability to manage primary care challenges effectively and confidently, and most importantly, safely. Register now to transform your triage approach at bit.ly slash GP triage course, the GP in capitals, and we will definitely catch you then. Hey GP Learners, welcome to this episode, we're going to be talking about the new update to the general practice contract that's come out in June, so basically a couple of days ago. It talks about three key aspects, so the CD uplift, and two new enhanced services talking about obesity and long COVID, as well as updating you on all the various things me and Andy have been up to over the past couple of weeks, and stuff coming for you in the next couple of weeks as well. Let's tech enhance your primary care and learning. <music> How are we doing there, Andy?
1: I'm pretty good, Gandhi. Um, It's a sort of slightly overcast morning over here in my part of Nottingham. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, not too bad. I know we've had a little bit of a break, so our EGP learners may have wondered why we're slightly out of sync compared to what we were doing before. Um, But yeah, it's been pretty cool. Myself and yourself are both taking a little bit of time of leave, desperately needed uh, and stuff, and uh, interesting to go back to the chaos that is general practice as ever um hopefully you all enjoyed our episodes whilst we we're away and we've got loads of amazing content coming for you in the next couple of weeks including and i'm going to mention this now our amazing system one user conference on the 30th of june if you haven't registered for this already absolutely must do the content we've got for this is so on point we just had our onboarding day yesterday with all the sponsors and speakers yesterday didn't we andy
1: yeah i spent some time with some of the uh, the sponsors and speakers yesterday um introducing them to the Hopin platform which is is actually fantastic a really good way of recreating that experience of going to a physical uh, conference there's uh, a networking area for those haphazard meetings you can have with interesting people expo area for interesting sponsors uh, as well as the normal kind of stage for your keynotes and sort of breakout rooms for sessions
0: uh, it does a really good job uh, it, it's worth coming along even just to experience the platform absolutely absolutely and in terms of the content, it's absolutely on point. So um, System 1 are really bringing some amazing things. I, I've had a couple of sneak peeks of what they're doing, and hopefully they'll all be ready to go for the conference on the 30th, if not imminently about to be released. So you will not be disappointed if you join us for the actual event. On top of that, sponsors are bringing some amazing stuff as well in terms of the things they're planning and doing. And on top of that, we're going to have all of our fun and usual games of engagement and that kind of stuff as well, some special prizes um, and a couple of things that even Andy doesn't know about. So definitely make sure you join us we'll put the links down below but today we're going to talk about something far more interesting i think in terms of the current points of view and that's the new contract guidance from nhs england that just dropped literally a couple of days ago explaining additional funding resources for general practice um i know gps are taking it one way but i think the media is taking it another aren't they andy yeah you want to bring bring up the daily mail i know um so we can, apologize can... for sharing the daily mail but this is the only organization that's gone down this line. Yeah, we try. We try to. Uh, we try to avoid it. Um, but yeah, I
1: I actually heard about this um, via the via the Daily Mail website. Um, not that I'm frequently there, but they do kind of invade my life through other uh, other portals uh, before I read the letter actually. So um, so they've. Uh, it's interesting how quickly these um, letters to general practice and contract variations actually make it out into the mainstream media. Actually, and often um, these journalists are very on the ball, and this is how we. We learn about these things through the headlines, which is a really odd way to uh, have a contractual arrangement with your with your main commissioner. I think.
0: So, um, so what's sort of take? You okay, well commented previously that there is this cynical view for many GPs, and potentially it may be realistic that actually, um, you know, the media is the way we get our information, not NHS England formally. So often there've been news stories that obviously have obviously been broken by the media well before even GPs know about them, and still particularly things like the the contract variations and stuff have been part of that. But yeah, carry on.
1: Yeah, they've gone in a in an interesting yet possibly
0: predictable direction
1: with with this. So, um, so the headline is GPs will be paid a bonus of eleven pounds fifty for every obese patient they refer to diet plans uh, and fitness trackers as part of NHS anti obesity drive, which is actually pretty accurate because that, mm-hmm. that that does check out with the facts of the contract variation. Um, there's a little bit of a, a flavour of bonuses for GPs, which um, is has a bit of that GP bashing flavour that they. They often engage in. Um, However, the article doesn't really go in that direction. And it's more of a um, anti-nanny state sort of direction uh, that the article goes in. They're very quick to jump on uh, the BMA's comments about um, the contract variations, which are negative. So sort of highlighting that that perhaps perhaps doctors don't want this intervention or feel that it's going to be helpful. Either So they jump on that and then they talk about how Boris Johnson has pivoted towards more nanny state ap- approach with regards to sugar tax and nudging people's behaviour in the direction of healthier lifestyles and interventions, which they disagree with as they mm-hmm. take a bit more of a libertarian standpoint on it. So that's really the direction that they go. But um, I think we just wanted to highlight it just to just to show how quickly the media jump on these things and sort of begin to take their own spin and you can have patients coming in to surgery asking you about things before you've even read the contract variation letter strange world
0: yeah i mean we're pretty quick we're trying to review this within two days of the document coming out but yeah they're far quicker two hours i think they, they did it in within but let's talk about the documents itself shall we so um the if you want to follow us on online and um, you're welcome to check out the link which is in the, the description of the youtube video and stuff so you're more than welcome to follow us on the document um, but we're going to go through it from top to tail. It's only a few pages, which is good by NHS English standards. Um, and we're just going to cover through the three main points that are coming through this. So the first one is the fact that NHS going are continuing the CD uplift payments for doing the vaccination schemes. So many people in general practice and PCNs will particularly be aware of this. So because of the amount of extra workload it's created for PCNs in terms of supporting and driving through, you know, our world-beating vaccination plan that we've got and how amazingly we've managed to vaccinate some significant proportion of the UK population and to continue to support that, that they are increasing the the CD funding as they have done for the past six months. um, And that will continue up until... September. September, yeah. Um it'll be interesting to see whether or not it gets continued again so every time they do this we keep saying well they're not going to do it again and they have done but i'm not sure i, I think this may continue again and the reason why i say that because october is going to put us well into flu campaign season and obviously what the flu campaign will look like will be really interesting i think this year round because obviously we've got seasonal flu and then we've got covid uh, as well and there are obviously some rumors about potentially people needing a third booster you know how that's going to work. What kind of other boosters and stuff people may potentially need. So, uh, hmm, I'm not going to say it's going to stop this time, Andy. I don't know what you're thinking.
1: I'm I'm waiting for the um, the 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 surprise contract variation letter with regards to flu vaccination this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a feeling we might see a letter on that topic um, that'll um, do something different with regards to flu vaccination. And and I think um, particularly if um, evidence uh, emerges that sort of co-vaccination of traditional seasonal flu vaccine along with a third covid booster for example would be beneficial for the mm-hmm. population then i think we'll see some sort of different scheme And i think that might be quite interesting for the relationship between clinical pharmacy uh, community pharmacists and gp practices um, mm-hmm. and how how they have traditionally been funded to um, provide those vaccinations uh, mm-hmm. placing each slightly at odds with the other to compete for patients uh, be interested I, I i wonder if they might do something slightly different to try and encourage collaboration and do something about that competitive environment i'm i'm not quite sure what they'll do but i, I think it might be an area yeah. of action so mark my words let's
0: see i think flu vaccination needs an overhaul in terms of the way it's been done i know a lot of that's been pushed into pcn level delivery and um, this year because obviously it's part of the iaf so the impact investment fund the targets are now taken through to that rather than individual practice targets and stuff um but like you say how that works collaboratively with the pharmacy networks and stuff it should do if they make it if we want proper vaccination of our population having a good collaboration between general practice and pharmacists rather than making competitive is absolutely the best way to do it but unfortunately the uh, the systems that you know, reconcile the amounts and the funding and everything else are designed to prevent that from happening so hopefully we'll see a change to, to allow that
1: yeah just one one further point on on that on that theme mm-hmm. uh we've had quite a high level of cooperation between the community pharmacists and gp yeah. practice and pcn in, in my area in particular mm-hmm. um around covid vaccination we've been working in partnership with them to deliver um vaccination clinics for our local population via a specific mm-hmm. swift queue link so just available for our local population um, in parallel to appointments on the national booking system that were provided in those clinics and that's worked really well but it's really developed that relationship with the community pharmacists and we've begun mm-hmm. to have some honest conversations about what makes us compete for flu jabs and and how that actually works and you know i'm, I'm hopeful that we might be able to cooperate more than compete going forwards so mm-hmm. i'd be really interested to see if nhs england do something to sort of encourage that cooperation as well. It's already there a little bit with the Investment and Impact Fund um, flu vaccination target, which is independent of where they're vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So that that is designed to encourage a bit of cooperation so I could see further developments in that area. But that's a little bit of a segue away from the main thrust of today's letter and episode.
0: Do you want to know how to use System 1 more effectively as a clinician? There are various different things you can look at, but there is only one course that can help you understand this and have all my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively, and that's the System 1 course for clinicians. If you want to have a look at it, have a look at bit.ly slash s1 course, tpp and s1 in capitals, but if you do have a look at it, what will you get? Well, you'll get content and information and guides on how to use System 1 more effectively, from getting started with System 1, to navigating the patient record, to understanding the key parts like doing a consultation, as well as prescribing, clinical admin, communication, and various other information. And this includes my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively, so it saves you time and your patients' stress in terms of their navigation with their patient journey. If you want to have a look at it, check out the link. As I said, it's bit.ly slash TPP S1 course, and the TPP and S1 are all in capitals, and you will get access to all this content perfectly. Even better yet, there's a money-back guarantee, so if you don't actually find this course has helped save you some time, just let me know. I'll refund you the course once you've completed it and stuff. Catch you then. So, yeah, true. And we're going to get now talk about the two additional levels of funding that we've got. So you're welcome to read the summary part, which is the first like page and a half of the letter. I think we're going to go into the deeper part, so aren't we, Andy? Um, so, But I can see there's a couple of highlighted sections that you wanted to talk about. Um, again, yeah, and- I've yeah again if you want to follow us the links are on the chat and um in the um descriptions and stuff and i'll put it on screen so you can have a look as well but the first one talks about the weight management enhanced service so lead us through it andy
1: yeah so well the first thing to say so these these are optional so these two additional um Mm -hmm. activities are optional they're not requirements that's the first thing to say and they between the two of them they attract 50 million additional funding so Mm -hmm. that's good they're not asking people to do optional things without um, providing some funding to enable them to do that um, mm-hmm. and there's 20 million for the weight management intervention and there's 30 million for a long covid intervention um so and i think they're sort of interestingly they link both of them with covid so they they deliberately highlight that obesity is a risk factor for coronavirus and then obviously long covid is associated with um, coronavirus and coronavirus recovery so this is this letter and intervention are very much about coronavirus and seen in response to that which I think is interesting positioning of these interventions um so yeah so let's lead off so
0: um first thing to say with that Andy if that's all right is uh, that these also kick off from the 1st of July so just about two weeks time so they are rapid starts in terms of uh, engagement and stuff with it so that's just additional point
1: yeah absolutely so just taking the the, so the main details are in the annexes of the letter. So the little mm-hmm. bit that follows the letter and the first one deals with the weight management enhanced service. So, yeah, it makes that link to coronavirus, which mm-hmm. I think is 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 important. And it kind of re-legitimizes these discussions around weight with patients. It's another yeah. often it's difficult to to initiate these conversations and uh, coronavirus is very large still in people's minds. I think it's, it's a good way of, um, of linking in and starting conversations. Um, And uh, so the information is mainly focused on um, uh, identifying patients with obesity and then referring them into an appropriate weight management service. So, um, so there's support to rebuild the practice Obesity register. There's recognition that that activity will have been difficult over the last year uh, and then use that information and the new conversations that will be happening around obesity uh, to uh, refer people through to weight management programs. Um, It's quite clear that these weight management programs don't need to be provided within um, the budget available for this intervention. Those are the weight management programs that should already be commissioned um, elsewhere within uh, within the primary care system so this is just about identification having a sensitive conversation around mm-hmm. obesity and um, and then referral into an appropriate service which might be informed by pe- people's comorbidities um, interesting thing i highlighted gandhi was um, they've uh, redefined obesity as um, a bmi of greater than 27.5 for um, for black asians and other ethnic minorities just mm-hmm. just ask what's if it's not too indiscreet Gandhi, what's your what's your bmi how are
0: you oh by that definition i would be obese just
1: yeah. i was i was i wasn't sure whether you'd answer that you were very welcome to uh side swerve it but uh, no, no,
0: no. i'm just over that so i think i'm 27.7 or something like that my bmi Um, it fluctuates depending on how active i've been and stuff and but yeah But yeah, they they have, uh, and okay. So we've had a question of why have they done that? I'm assuming it's why have they reclassified it? So that's gone from uh, SS23. I am assuming because they recognise that actually the risk factors in the um, Black uh, African and Asian communities are actually significantly higher because of BMI, and actually it's recognised that BMI um, usage in Caucasians is different to the other ethnicities, and it has a higher risk factor, particularly. uh, I mean, absolutely in in the Asian community um you know things like diabetes and heart disease are, seem to be a lot more prevalent and a lot of that you know is driven by diabetes diabetes a majority of it is a lot of it down to weight as well in terms of how much your resistance is impacted on so i think that's the reason why they're classifying it at a slightly different level is that good or bad it comes down to i think the the actions and the res- resources to help which we're going to talk about
1: yeah i think it's i think it's evidence-based isn't it my understanding is that the the level of being overweight, the level of ob- obesity or being overweight um, at which your um, risk of developing type 2 diabetes, for example, increases is different for black and Asian ethnic minority populations compared to the Caucasian population. So I think it's an entirely um, evidence driven approach, yeah. which I respect. Um Although it's interesting that it's different. It'd be interesting to see if that raises any um, conversations from people.
0: probably also worth noting that obesity and particularly the BMI is often not the best marker of knowing about general health um, as such. So obviously you can technically have a really high BMI and be a super athlete, for example, um, and in, in other parallels as well. So the BMI itself on, on individually is not a, always a good marker of health. And I think it's important we don't confuse those two aspects with how it's worked. But obviously, they have to use something. They're using the BMI because it's one of the easier calculations to do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just easy, isn't it? You you just have to weigh someone and know their height. So it's so mm. easy. And you're right. At, at an individual level, it's going to throw up lots of false positives for people mm. who have health challenges. Um, but as a population level intervention, um, then it's probably going to be a helpful rule of thumb. For identifying mm. people who might benefit from a weight management referral. Yeah. Um, and of course it's just about identifying people for the conversations, really, isn't it? You know, if your BMI is less than 30 or less than 27.5, then your GP surgery is, you know, not going to go any further, not going to have those conversations. Those conversations might result in identifying that actually you're a, you know, you're you're a, a really fit rugby player and yeah. you don't need a weight management intervention, in which case it's not going to happen. So mm. I think as a screening tool for people who need the intervention, pretty good or i can't think of anything better really um so that's interesting so shall we talk about the just break it down into the the requirements because these oh. are the things that practices will have to make sure that they do and it breaks it down into a, a few components mm-hmm. um the first one is about developing a supportive environment so this is about making sure that everyone involved in this intervention at the practice so uh, for me i think that could mean anyone from receptionists um, to your more experienced clinicians um, should have the appropriate training and skills um, Mm -hmm. to have sensitive conversations um, around lifestyle and weight management Um, and also that there should be protected learning time for this training so I've just sort of highlighted this here and said I think uh, and it it mentions the word commissioners so I think commissioners should be supporting time for this activity to happen um, and even potentially supporting with the content of that activity so i think we can go to our commissioners and and ask for that um gandy do you find these conversations generate much much friction because there's an emphasis here on trying to i think increase people's skills to have these conversations without causing offense what's your experience of these conversations at your practice
0: um i think inevitably it comes down to how you raise it um and recognizing the patients that you're raising this with so um, you know, sometimes it can go really, really well, and it can be an open door to discuss other issues. You know, if you go in the tone of "Oh, well, your health issues, of course, by your weight," and leave it at that, then actually, you know, it's not a great way of doing it. So, having some understanding of useful ways to approach lifestyle change with patients, I think having the education for all practice teams to do that, I think, is going to be really sensible. And I like the fact that, and this is the part I really do like about this letter: it doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't state that it's the GP. That has to do this it does focus on the fact this is a practice team and a network team approach as well and the reason why i like that so much is because obviously one of the new roles that kicked off this year is the health and well-being coaches so having their involvement and the fact that they can do some of this work which is what they should be doing this is what health and well-being coaches almost perfectly designed to do you know having them being able to do this rather than saying it's the gp that has to do everything as unfortunately seems to be the case often this part i really like about the letter so you know focusing on that it's a team approach and actually helping the team to understand that principle will be really good
1: yeah just just w- with relevance to this this potential to cause offense because i, I think mm-hmm. this was sort of at the heart of some of the, the bma's response to this intervention in particular um the, the danger here is that we incentivize gp surgeries to have more conversations around people's mm-hmm. uh, weight um where we know that it, it's a really difficult thing to, um, to actually change and influence and improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the success of uh, some of these weight management, I'm, I'm sure they, I'm sure they have a good evidence base, you know, the individual ones, but my, my personal experience is that often patients don't really make progress or engage very well often. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, do you think there's a danger that we just have conversations that cause offense that that sort of damage our relationships when really patients want to be talking to us about their diabetes or their hypertension or their heart disease and other things that actually they're more willing to engage with. And there's more of an opportunity there to improve their health. Um, You know, but but we kind of spend our time focusing on this because it's incentivized and, you know, we lose a bit of that relationship.
0: I think it's always possible. I think the reality is though, with those health conditions you mentioned, we know that weight is intrinsically linked to a lot of the outcomes of those so if you don't tackle the weight and just focus on the condition um, then are you setting yourself up for you know an unsuccessful outcome as a result of it because it is part and parcel man. now how much of it is relevant that will be something very much on individual patient And hopefully we should know our patients to some degree in such a way that we can know which ones this is an approach to take and which ones it isn't like the fact that they are recommending that we have training to help people understand that so you know it's things like concepts like motivational interviewing all that kind of stuff you know using those tactics and helping practice teams to understand those tactics can actually make it more successful I I actually think it's a good thing I I can understand where you're coming from though that it could cause conflict uh, you know any type of lifestyle change can cause conflict when you raise it with a patient, whether it's smoking, alcohol, weight, you know, caffeine use is one that I, I often have with patients because actually it's something I like to talk about with them for a lot of their health issues. But you know, it, it's how you raise it, it's the way you raise it, and it's the tone that you use as well.
1: Yeah, I need to lay off those uh, monster energy drinks myself. Oh, okay, yeah, um, uh, yeah no, I'm, I'm playing with you, really, Gandhi. I, I think this is um, a good intervention. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's always the opportunity for, for for good ideas to be implemented badly in some places. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will happen, but uh, I think on the whole, it's it, it's good, and they're they're identifying that problem you know, right at the mm-hmm. very beginning as well. Um, so, um, so they talk about the uh, so this I think is the is a key part here. So practices should develop and implement a protocol for the yeah. identification and support of patients. So this is is really the nuts and bolts of it, really, in terms of what they want us to do. So they want us to have. Um, want us to normalize conversations about weight so that we can have them in a non-offense causing way um which i think is is important um they want us to uh recognize the sensitivity of these conversations um ensure that all opportunities for identification of these patients are maximized so mm-hmm. later on they go on to say this, you know you don't have to have specific appointments for this you know this can be embedded in uh, routine reviews, NHS health yep. checks, medication reviews, SMRs with our clinical pharmacists, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps social prescriber interventions. You know, it can really be embedded in in business as usual to um, to to, which would help normalise these conversations because more will be happening, and uh, it'll also increase the um, the service area of our um, of our efforts to identify these patients as well. So I think that's that's a really important point. Uh, they want us to empower patients to provide practice with information about their weight. So I think that's a that's a green light for saying, okay, weigh yourself on your scales at home mm-hmm. and tell us, you know, what the result is. Uh, you know, measure your height. You know, that's fine. Tell us what that is. Uh, although it does just specifically say weight rather than height there, but um, mm-hmm. I think we can get them to collect information. So that's really uh, remote working friendly. I think, yeah. which is really really important because a lot of these people still can't get on the scales at their gp practice um, it's important to record the bmi in their notes so there's an element of making sure that these things are coded and maintaining and rebuilding your obesity register mm-hmm. at the practice um and then uh, and then we have to refer them into the appropriate um the appropriate service essentially um mm-hmm. and yeah how do you how do you feel about they get other are other services there do we have the right do we have the right services? Do the services have capacity to deal with the numbers of patients we might identify via this
0: incentivized approach? I think this is part of the challenge, isn't it? So if you look at tackling obesity and some of the evidence that's around now, I'll, I'll be clear, I'm by no means an expert on obesity, um, apart from technically now having it, according to the new guidance. Um, yeah. Um, but I guess one of the key things that we, we are increasingly learning about is that, you know, the, the old adage of um, your weight is energy in versus energy out. It's not as simple as a calculation like that. It has an impact, absolutely. If you take in more calories than you burn off, your weight will naturally go up over time. There is increasing understanding that actually it's more complex than that. And it's down to a variety of other hormonal issues and, and things like the, the dead mass, something or other. It's got some weird name once you get to a particular level. So, obese and particularly the significantly obese and we're talking you know bmi's 35 40 plus kind of thing that actually your body tries to reset itself to those particular weights and it either it will take either superhuman stand and will the kind of things that you'd expect people like shazam and that kind of stuff to have to try and break it down once you get to those you know super obese levels so whilst having access to these interventions in tier two so I think probably what is helpful for us to cover really briefly, Andy, is the difference between um, the, the types of services they're m- mentioning. So tier one services is kind of like your public health campaigns and simple kind of things that most people would you know easily be able to access without having to have any contact with anybody else. And they should be provided by your local authorities and things. Um, so, you know, that, that's information on websites, all that kind of stuff tier two is the more dedicated support services where it's kind of like a targeted program again they should ideally be provided by your local authorities um, and that can be things like um, commission services such as um, you know um, slimming world for example using other party providers to provide educational practices for a length of time to support patients with their weight loss outcomes and that kind of stuff tier three is when it goes to ccgs formally and the healthcare service and that's looking at you know, structured multidisciplinary teams to try and support patients with weight management, and so that'll be normally a clinician with specialist interest, like a GP or a specialist, uh, physiotherapist, dietician, psychologists, all that kind of stuff. And that team approach of trying to help support the patients, and clearly that they end up being the the you know, the, like I said, the BMI thirty five forty pluses, that kind of stuff. Apologies if I've got, I've got the number wrong. And then tier four is when you're looking at surgical options. Which, when you get to BMI forty plus, to be honest, the surgical options are the only ones that actually are evidence based to work. So that's the key issue that we have. A lot of this information focuses on tier two service provision, so that you know local authority provided educational packages and stuff. And actually, when you're trying to tackle obesity, particularly the obesity that really matters, you know the the, the forty pluses and stuff, is it likely to be effective? The evidence doesn't really support that so yeah we'll leave you with that one
1: yep there's a problem but but what does work for weight management um i think you know at at an individual level a lot lot of people have success stories and i've Mm -hmm. and i've seen it but there's a lot of um population level failure Mm -hmm. of 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 all sorts of weight management approaches um But, you know, at least we get to drive more people through the system. You know, we can, you know, see, we can see how this works. You know, if this, Mm -hmm. if this doesn't work, then we'll try a different approach in the future. But uh, it sounds like it's grounded on, um, on sound principles. again, how are you guys going to go about developing this protocol in your practice or your, you know, is there a role for primary care networks here or at a city level? You know, how do you see this playing out
0: um, for you in Nottingham? So I'm going to give you my suggestion of what people do now. You can clearly listen to this. You can clearly adapt it. You can clearly do what you want with it. Um, I would suggest that locally, um, using our practice learning times, there needs to be a package of educational information that services the practice. Okay, so you need to educate the practice as a team and the networks themselves. So our PLTs, practice learning times, are the opportunity—you know—opportunity um, to do so. And if your local area doesn't have practice learning times this is the best example of why you need them, to be honest. Um, so, you know, that, that's a key thing to have the educational and to give people the opportunity to understand the various different aspects. Next, you use that educational time to create resources, either from other areas, and, and the letter does state that there will be some resources being come down from, you know, the, the centre and stuff to supporters. But making that a bit more personal in terms of the resources that you have, so the opportunity to evaluate what resources you actually have in your area, where there's some holes potentially but then also directing that what you need to do for patients and that kind of stuff and then creating some educational content for patients such as like a really brief video of how to tackle weight management issues and the resources that you can support patients with if they're at particular levels and stuff then you send out a campaign that says are you concerned about your weight here's a video Kind of talks about it so the patient can watch and engage that information and ideally having that translated into various languages particularly various like ours we've got obviously patients with non-english speaking issues and then tag that on at the bottom with another link that captures information like if you are please give us your weight and your height and we will then support you with the relevant services to help you from that place and that can then lead to outcomes either with you know, sending information for Tier 1, Tier 2. If it needs something more significant, then you can involve things like your health and wellbeing coaches. You can involve other areas. or you can do direct referrals to, you know, Tier 2, Tier 3 services and stuff, if relevant things. And I think that mechanism, A, should fulfill the requirements of the enhanced service, and B, should really help to improve patient engagement with this and mean that we actually do something really effectively. But that's my view. What do you yeah, think? I think-
1: yeah, I think that, sound, that sounds fantastic, Andy. Um, yeah, really excellent. Um, I think sort of the the sort of city level where people might be developing their PLT sessions is the right mm-hmm. level for this to happen. Also PCN level is a reasonable sort of mm-hmm. level to use some economies of scale to design an appropriate information, an appropriate intervention. I think when it comes to developing nice um, packaged information for patients, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing that um, at a level... Bigger than a, an individual practice is often yeah. a good use of time. And also it often Absolutely. legitimizes that information. If you can say it's come from a group of practices, mm-hmm. then I think that provides a little bit more legitimacy that your practice isn't just singling you out because they think you might have a problem with your weight and they want their £11.50. You know, you know, this is actually part of a national campaign and we're approaching this as a group mm-hmm. uh, within the city. And also you can develop better quality um information packets for patients and i think some patients like video some patients like you know written information pdfs you know physical uh physical flyers you know to yeah. to ask them to engage with the program so i think that that would be a good idea um and then also i think if you're structured about this you can make sure that the right people are doing the right work so actually getting the information out can sort of be the job of everybody really Receptionists, social prescribers i think can be involved in getting information out to patients Um, and then when the information comes in you know there can be an element of triage around okay how how bad is this person's weight problem Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: you know if it's about tier one tier two interventions then that really doesn't need to come near the clinicians you know at, at the practice really because that's about signposting them to local authority interventions but for you know three and four maybe that's where you really do need to be focusing on on having careful conversations um and where there is um appetite within that person to make a change because i think that's a very important indicator of whether the intervention will be successful or whether the referral to the intervention will be successful uh, where that appetite is is there and the patient understands what they're signing up for fire away send them in um, and hopefully mm-hmm. we can make good use of what will be limited resources at tier three and tier four mm-hmm. um, so i think we need to be responsible about how we use those resources
0: um, yeah cool so and it's important to recognize that even accessing those services even though they're limited can be really challenging so to access tier three services in our area requires multiple steps for the patient to have been through it requires significant amounts of exclusion forms to be filled in from the gp practice it's not an easy process it's a really prolonged one that can take time so making that side of things a lot easier would always- ideal i guess in terms of capturing the information it does give us some specifics in the patient support and referral aspects of things doesn't it about how the fact that you have to have a weight documented in the past 12 months and i think that's possibly where the daily Mail's picked up on some of the, the content and things in which we talked about and in particular about the payment isn't andy yeah so 11 past 50 so
1: we uh you were crunching some numbers Gandhi, and you felt mm-hmm. there was a bit of a discrepancy between um, the amount of funding available for this intervention, 20 million mm-hmm. and the amount of money that would be required to refer all of the obese people um, mm-hmm. to a or to fund um, their passage through this pathway yeah. to be referred to weight management people if you if you include all of the obese people in England, for example. Yeah. so how does that
0: break down? Well, if you just scroll slightly up, the reason why I'm asking that is because it's relevant to one of the things it mentions here, which is the National, what's it called, the NHS Digital Weight Management Services. So, and these are specifically for patients with obesity, with either hypertension or diabetes. Um, And this is a new service that's going to be launched from the 1st of July. Um, It seems like it's a digital resource um, and that can have a capacity of up to 270,000 patients in this current financial year. So from July till um, April 2022 um, and then there's other weight management services and things and then you know it talks about all the other aspects from there. So the referral is um, the, the practices will be paid £11.50 for any patient living with obesity that's then referred on to an eligible weight management services. So I'd really like clarification if that means it's the NHS digital weight management service or if it's all the other options included because that's a distinction that would be nice to clarify. But the reason why that's relevant, so if you imagine that there's 270,000 patients that you can maximum refer across the country, um, 70,000 practices, uh, sorry, 7,000 practices across the country, irrespective of the patient numbers and stuff, it doesn't really work out numbers wise in terms of accessibility. So I think that 270,000 can be filled really, really quickly. Um, and you compare that to the number of patients estimated to have obesity in the UK is approximately just under 20 million so those numbers don't seem to rack up and whether the provision of services has got enough capacity to deal with what they're expecting the other thing which is the next line so section 11 that it talks about um it says that it's going to be using the data to evaluate this based on march and 2020 data and i'm really confused why they're not using march 21 data which is obviously more accurate and is available i wonder if it's down to the view that because of covid we don't have as much. Weight readings, because patients have been coming in at less than what they used to, to the practice. So is that because we've got less capturing of data in some way? But I've not seen any evidence to back that up, because actually the weight, as you mentioned earlier, you can just ask the patient over the phone, what's your weight, and document it from there, which is what I've been doing loads of for many of our patients and stuff. So I'm I'm really confused why they're using old data to evaluate the payments, yet all the targets are based on current data. There's a little bit of explanation I think that's needed there. Yeah, I'm not quite sure either Gandhi. I think does it depend on
1: how on how you actually populate your obesity register. I'm just speculating here, mm-hmm. but do do you need to have the weight within the last 12 months in order to for them to be on the obesity register? And therefore, yeah. mm, don't know. It could be the case and therefore, I suppose whilst whilst we would have been able to ask patients their weight over the telephone over the last mm-hmm. 12 months, it's not really been a focus, I suspect. So, mm probably they've probably looked at the data and they probably think that the the 31st of march 2021 is is bum data
0: i think because they've probably got that data maybe but it's interesting think- to remember that as i said so there's approximately just under 20 million people according to the king's fund data from 2019 living with obesity okay um the funding that they've allocated this is the 20 million pounds funding that you mentioned if you divide that by fifty, that's just under 1.74 million people could potentially be referred that's what the funding will allow and it clearly states the funding is capped; that there's no more once it's been used. So, is it going to allow for you know potential people? Is that are they saying that you know only ten percent of patients are actually going to want to do anything about their weight? I don't know. That's kind, of, that what might, kind that, of like that. might that might be about right. Um, mm-hmm. they, that, they'll have run
1: some modelling, won't they? And they you know to to inform and, it. Yeah. And they've in, they've incorporated the concept of the cap, haven't they? I, I guess they've mm-hmm. decided the 20 million is a reasonable amount to, to throw at this. They, mm. They've they structured this letter in the contract so that, so that it can't be above that because it's capped. Yeah. Um, so I think they're being responsible around how yeah. they're handling, uh, how they're handling this. And they're clearly making an estimate as to how many people are going to be identified and then, uh, you know, accept and consent to a referral. Uh, but yeah, the, the numbers don't, don't all stack up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about this, this sort of capping exercise? Do you, because it gives the flexibility, I believe, for commissioners to um, apply a cap on individual practices. Is is mm-hmm. this there, do you think, to stop some of the practices who are really, really proactive and perhaps um, have very proactive patience mm-hmm. um, from uh, from gobbling up all of this resource? Um, and perhaps uh, if one makes an assumption, which is only an assumption that proactive Uh, patients tend to cluster in more affluent areas. You know, there's a danger that if you don't give the option to cap that there's a transfer of funds, um, preferentially to kind of more motivated, more affluent Mm -hmm. kind of patients in areas who perhaps have less health challenges anyway. So, um,
0: do you think that's why the cap, the cap, the cap's there? I'm hoping that's the reason for it, uh, and you know it's nice to see some attempt at trying to try and create an equality aspect in terms of, uh, sorry, an equity aspect in terms of the funding and things. So you know it does mention about the fact that practices will be capped and how much of the allocated funding they can use. Uh, it does also mention that if you've not used um, any of the level of funding by November time, so I think it's forty percent. If you've not used forty percent of the available options by November, then they may reallocate the funding. Um, to other places that are able to do so. So I think there is some fairness in there. I know people are going to have different views in terms of what is fair and what isn't fair. But it's nice to see some elements of it being done. So again, um, a a nice addition from NHS England, um, which is refreshing to see, to be honest. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the payment and and everything else like that. Um, The payments will be made quarterly by commissions commissioners that's the last thing i think that the letter explains so you know it is a bit of a lag time but that's what's usual for general practices and at the moment everything we get paid for about three or four months after we've actually done it hmm. so yeah on, on the whole i think that
1: seems like a, yeah. a reasonable um a reasonable contract and it's probably the right time to start doing something about people's weight again as people come out of lockdown and mm-hmm. while there's still that link with COVID in people's mind, perhaps to add to the motivation to take action. So
0: the timing's pretty good, I think. So the next, um, the just next just section on to that, Andy. We have had a couple of comments and stuff. that Cool, uh, so Mohan mentioned earlier about um, how there's been a move to wa- using waste management. Sorry, move to using waste measurement. As a marker of um, ill health and obesity and stuff, instead of BMI, which I think has some evidence behind it in terms of the, the, the size of your waist has, is a good marker of um, ill health in some ways. Um, but it's also a harder one to capture because it allows a lot more user variability. Because where do you measure the waist from? Often patients may make an error in terms of that um, and stuff. So it's important to, to be aware of that. Um, and then S, S23 again asked the question about the BMI aspect. So we talked about how that, um, you know, rugby players, for example, are commonly used the example where their BMI is potentially very high, but actually they're super fit and it's not an issue. Is there a way to exclude them? Well, it's, it's like Andy said that um, if if you know that they have something around them that means that they're not technically obese for a medical reason, then actually you just don't put them forward for it, you know? Um, but yeah, it's not really another mechanism as far as i'm aware yeah i don't
1: don't think it's it's operating like a kind of indicator with a numerator and denominator to um to determine the the payments i think it's just if you if for everyone you do you get paid you know it's that it's that sort of um Mm -hmm. thing uh which is simpler Uh, so there's no need to exclude patients and you know some patients it's just not going to be logical to put them forwards for the intervention so that you're just automatically
0: not going to do it for those patients okay so now we're going to talk about the Long COVID Enhanced Service. Um, so this is, um, a, again, a new service being developed to try and support the impact of particularly long COVID on patients. Um, it's got more funding than the obesity one, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, um, there is that difference. Um, and it focuses a lot on some of the evidence that we have, except in fact we don't have a lot of evidence about long COVID because it's so new. Um, and it mentions new, I think, about three or four times in this particular section as well, doesn't it, Andy?
1: It does, yes. So, yeah, new, new condition. But they, I think, NHS England are anticipating that this is going to be a big problem. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the, the sorts of numbers um, that they, I think they they sort of look at, uh, give a number of about a million cases somewhere within this document. Um, and also, it's going to be a politically sensitive um, topic yeah. as well. So it's going to affect a lot of people, um, and I think there's going to be a lot of talk about it. So I think it's important that. Um, we both do and are seen to do something about it. That's that that that's that's part of mm-hmm. why it's there, I think. Um and again, this is really about um similar um, model to the weight intervention. Um this is about educating staff um to have conversations and to identify patients uh correctly with long COVID and then to um, put in place appropriate interventions, which essentially are uh referrals to self uh care self-treatment resources and also to um local long covid clinics um and uh, there will be a requirement uh, to commission those locally um as well so yeah what do
0: you what are your thoughts gandhi about this or i think it's actually not too badly written and enhanced service in terms of what it looks like and how they're approaching it um i think the first thing to, to mention to those that aren't aware so long covid is defined as either um, ongoing symptoms from COVID four to uh, 12 weeks post infection, or ongoing symptoms um, because of a syndrome that may have been caused and a continuum, there's no other cause found for them. So, obvious things that I think many patients may have experienced is the breathlessness or the loss of smell and taste and, and that kind of stuff, and how significant they are. But actually, there are many patients who are experiencing unusual other types of symptoms like palpitations, exhaustion. And a variety of other things that potentially may have been triggered by COVID itself it kind of mirrors up to the whole concept of things like ME and other kind of conditions that sometimes are considered to be post-viral episodes and that kind of stuff. Um, but specifically, obviously, this is with reference to a COVID um, um, infection. Um and I vaguely, and apologies if I have got this wrong, I'm, I'm using my memory, which is never always 100%, but I vaguely remember there's some theories around there that you don't necessarily have to have had a positive COVID test in order to be counted as long COVID, although that is probably one of the better markers for it, um, because there are some patients that repeatedly tested negative and still had unusual symptoms, which they can't find any other cause for an assumption that it's been COVID. Um, so there is that element of things. But it does focus a lot on the nice guidance that's come through, and again, if you want links to that, we put that in the description below, and it is under the document there, as you can see, Andy, showing and stuff. Um, so it does mention that a few times in terms of how to structure clinics and all that kind of stuff and things. Um, but it does talk about how and, and what they're asking us to do. So, so, what did you get from that, Andy? Yeah, so if we break down the requirements,
1: um, so again, very similar to the weight management intervention. So there's uh, an, an education component to it um mm-hmm. and they're asking us to make sure that all staff who are going to be involved in this process of identifying assessing referring and supporting patients have training that is appropriate to their role within mm-hmm. the system and their you know their, their level of expertise so the education that's going to be required for your social prescribers as you said with weight management is going to mm-hmm. be quite different to that's going to be required of your uh, nurses and your general practitioners will be having more in depth um Involvement in the clinical assessment of these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to make sure that appropriate education has been mm-hmm. delivered. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of how how to deliver that, um, th- this would be you know, a fantastic topic for a protected or professional learning time event. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that if everybody's going to be doing it because of the contract requirement in the letter, Then it makes sense to do that at scale uh, and you can kind of pull in your secondary care specialists and have some really good quality Mm -hmm. um, educational material and make sure that that's not just for the clinicians, but for Mm -hmm. other people who will be involved in identifying these patients. also talks about sharing of learning within systems and between system partners. Um, So I think that's definitely where primary care networks and potentially wider PLT events can, can have a role in terms Mm -hmm. of providing a forum to discuss people's experience of dealing with patients with long COVID and um, what is working, what isn't working and the implementation of this letter. Um, uh, And then it talks about, um, And then, so once you've identified these patients uh you know what's the intervention well Mm -hmm. it's um you know it's really signposting or referring to an appropriate intervention or part of the pathway so initially in for more mild cases that might be um signposting to the your covid recovery website um have you had a look at that gandhi i've not i've not been there um i'm assuming it
0: Very briefly, it's got a nice collection of Mm -hmm. resources and stuff and information. So, yeah, it's it's a good place to start, I think. Yeah, good.
1: And then and then, you know, if if patients still are not making progress and are significantly affected by their symptoms, then a referral to the local uh, long COVID clinic, post-COVID assessment clinic, Mm -hmm. whatever they are going to be labelled in your area um, is the the other intervention. Um, So that's essentially what they're asking us to do, um, which. Um, At face value isn't too much, but Mm -hmm. there's they're anticipating a large number of patients with this syndrome. So it may actually amount to quite a lot of work coming through practices. So I think it's good that it's being um, funded. Um, The the coding section Mm -hmm. actually is is the best way to break down what it what it wants you to do. I think Um, it talks about, right, we need to diagnose these patients. So we're going to have to identify and have conversations um, about them. We're going to have to signpost them or refer them. And it gives us the, you know, it tells us there are, are codes that we can use for that. And then, of course, uh, they'll be interested to know if patients are resolved. So we should be applying resolution codes where we know that their long COVID has resolved. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really what we're going to do. I mean, was there anything you wanted to say before we get on to the assurance and and payment
0: around this intervention? Um, so I'm happy to share what I would suggest to be a plan for people. If you wanted, I can give you yeah, a stand solution. Yeah, again, um, so it, part of this comes down to doing a little bit of work about researching and, and you know auditing kind of the situation you've got. So, how awesome would it be if you created a audit-based um, template that or protocol that basically went through your system, checked for patients with a positive test for COVID? Um, and then check that have they, you know, uh, the prompt or something like that to remind you that four to 12 weeks afterwards to have a contact with that patient, just to ask how you're getting on. And that could be either automated through a text messaging system like one of the Florries or various other things that systems may use or an e-consult. And then you can feed back information if they're, you know, having still ongoing symptoms, either direction to the your COVID website or, you know, do you need a further discussion Um, You could outsource that to other parts of your team, for example, like the social link workers to then review those kind of informations and things. And if they are having significant clinical symptoms, they're directed to a clinician to deal with their health issues. Whereas if it's more, you know, um, occupational health, social aspects, all those kind of impacts and stuff, obviously social link workers, OTs, that kind of resources and things. Um, and all built around a template that potentially you've got running in your system, potentially provided by, I'm going to name drop a couple of places here, things like Arden's and Primary Care IT, who happen to be sponsor of our system One Facebook user group conference and stuff. But, you know, having that kind of structured template to input the information to make the clinicians and the practice life easy so that everyone knows what codes to use so you don't get any issues with the coding and that kind of stuff. You can use obviously things like F12, which is what we use in, in, in Nottingham and that, that kind of stuff. And you've got a process there, haven't you? And all of that's backed up by an educational process like you mentioned in something like a PLT, which is, again, a reason why we need practice learning times and stuff across the areas, um, beforehand to educate the practice teams and what kind of symptoms and issues to look out for with the patients in the majority. Boom. Boom, good. Gandhi, I, so I like your solution.
1: I think I'll probably be doing something similar. I'm going to mm-hmm. put my devil's advocate horns on for a second. Go for that. Um, so so the, the contract variation... It, is is different to the um, the obesity intervention mm-hmm. in terms of um, payment is not directly linked to the identification and referral of cases in no. this instance. Mm-hmm. Although when we talk about payment, we'll see that that um, there probably will be an element of assurance which uh, involves data collection of activity based on these codes from practices. Mm-hmm. So we need to be aware that practices need to do enough. So mm-hmm. the, so because what uh, so we're not necessarily paid. For every um, event or person that we put through a mm-hmm. system, um, there there is a danger that, I, and I'm, this is potentially slightly controversial, but um, I know a lot of people will be talking about the potential for over-identification of patients with long COVID and mislabeling of patients potentially with long COVID, which might actually affect their perception of their health going forwards and their recovery potential going okay. forwards. Yep. Um, because there there will be no positive test for long COVID. Yep. Um, uh, you know, a, a positive test for having had COVID will be supportive of a diagnosis, but you know, diagnosis won't be conditional on that. And a lot of people mm-hmm. with positive tests may not have long COVID. Um, and the sorts of symptomat symptoms there um, are actually quite broad and they are self-reported. So I know people would be concerned that we might, we could if we were very proactive about seeking to label patients with this label, because perhaps we felt, uh, particularly if we were being paid for it, but even not if we felt we're being judged on our performance on this measure, uh, we could potentially do harm to patients by giving them an inappropriate label that um, makes them adopt different health behaviours to those that they would if they didn't have the label so some people might advocate a position which is um less proactive but doing a really really good job if patients um do come forwards with uh symptoms that that really are consistent but but perhaps placing the onus on patients to tell Mm -hmm. us when they're having difficulty i don't know what would you what would you say to that sort of challenge you know what do you
0: think I think over-medicalization is absolutely a challenge that we all currently face, and that links in with, you know, overdiagnosis. that links in with um, uh, over-prescribing and, you know, polypharmacy and all the other aspects. So you're right, we have to be cautious not to o- overdo this, because actually, is that then creating more harm in the future for those both individual patients and the population as a whole? Um, I think, you know, clearly what I suggested can be tailored to how you want to use it. So it could just simply be a reminder to the clinician the next time they have a contact. Is this something that's relevant? And if it is, you carry on down a pathway. If it's not, then you just, yeah, it's just that aid memoir to help you think, do I need to consider long COVID in this particular patient? You know, And that'll be varying. So if you've got a patient that has no active symptoms, you know, six weeks down the line, okay, fine, sorted. If you've got a patient that actually keeps presenting to the practice multiple times because they've got breathlessness, because they've got, you know, um, pal- palpitations and that kind of stuff. Having that reminder say, actually, could this have been triggered by COVID and do we need to approach this in a different way? Do we need to consider other conditions that are potentially linked with that? So the vascular issues and stuff we obviously know more and more about in terms of how COVID affects it. Does that help to mean that we get a better resolution for that individual patient? Maybe. I don't know. A bit a bit what I like about this one is it's focused on the education and the awareness of the issues. Obviously what the outcome is after that point, there's less of a focus on in terms of necessarily having, um, you know, targets to hit, which I think is the important thing. It's more just making sure the data's as right as it could be, but you're right. We may always get it wrong. That's unfortunately a challenge with it, isn't it? I think it's a gray area. And I think actually mm-hmm. the positioning of NHS England on this is,
1: is right. In mm-hmm. my opinion, um, because you know, it's a new diagnosis we're not quite sure what having this label means you know yeah. for, for patients going forwards or whether we have effective interventions that mm-hmm. we can apply to people with this label but we know it's going to be a big problem and it's going to be important so i think the positioning around health uh, sorry around education um and particularly identifying and helping those people where they definitely have a need is right at this stage and and i think this reads in a way that i think nhs think they're going to keep their eye on this and yeah. you know they'll They'll dial up or dial down, you know, the the level of interventions around this condition uh, mm-hmm. as we move forward. So, yeah. So I suppose the final thing to talk about is um, assurance and payment. So mm-hmm. in terms of assurance at this stage, all they're asking us actually to do is uh, whilst they're providing us with with codes. I think we should do that. They're just asking us to do a self-assessment about where the practice feels um, they uh, they they sit and what the practice has done to mm-hmm. um, to meet these requirements and that that's all they're really asking from
0: um from practices in order to receive the um qi kind of process in some way so it's just asking for a report at the you know towards the end of the year saying what you've done um how have you tackled the issues what changes have you put in place and are you recording the data accurately so it really does seem to link up to the qi work that we're doing Interesting part about the funding, so we mentioned it's 30 million that they've allocated for this. If you divide that by the population sizes and various different things, an average PCN of 50,000 patients can expect to earn approximately £24,000 in total. However, only 75% of that's going to be paid initially and the remaining 25% will be paid on completion. So um, it's, it's not an insignificant amount of support and funding to, to drive this. And I think, you know, out of the two, enhanced services that are suggesting the long covid one to me seems like the more sensible one for um you know practices and networks to engage in and definitely from a network perspective i would recommend doing this rather than from an individual practice perspective um because i think like you said you're more likely to have economies of scale to support you to do that um yeah it would be interesting to see if anybody thinks that, that we've missed something in this because uh, you know often we see enhanced services with massive potential holes and stuff with it I'm not seeing any major ones with the, the long COVID one in terms of, you know, it seems to be a win-win for majority of people, apart from the fact it's just additional workload. But it's workload that does have some funding with it. So, you know, it doesn't seem like it's the worst in the world, to be honest, compared to some of the other things we've had. And, and it's optional
1: mm. although there might be some judgment on those practices that, that don't take action on it but but it is technically optional mm. um, the, another thing i would say is so that the funding is to practices but a mm. lot of where we've talked about these things would be best delivered we've talked about pcns and mm. you know even wider networks of practices who perhaps share practice uh learning time um and uh, but that's not where the funding is focused no. so i think that that's that, that, that's interesting because uh, I think there'll be a push for primary care networks to help with a lot of this stuff. And I think a lot of them won't be able to resist and it's the right level to design an, an intervention and an approach mm-hmm. that will be consistent across a community. Um, but the funding isn't going to go to primary care networks. It's going to go to practices. So I think mm-hmm. that's, that's interesting. It'd be interesting to know if anybody is able to square that circle, will practices pay primary care networks to do some of this work and have a transfer of funding um, mm-hmm. or not? interesting question
0: i mean you're right it makes a lot more sense to have one learning session across multiple practices than each individual practice in a given area doing their own things because you you just have the economy of scale in terms of doing that um how you then have an additional element i guess potentially looking at the outcomes and the individual actions your practice or your area may want to take obviously that's a little bit more um, additional from that point but i i just think that you know this is something that could work really well from a network perspective but you're right that the funding will go to the practice as it should do for any enhanced service and stuff so making sure they're being remunerated for their time and the work that they're doing and stuff but yeah it'd be interesting to see how practice take taken and more importantly how clinicians and cds are going to be approaching this with their practices because uh, they've got really short time to to, to get involved and stuff so uh, i know we've got a network meeting on thursday so i'll be raising this at, at that point um obviously our declaration both me and andy our clinical directors have yeah, PCNs and stuff. So also we are talking about potentially from that viewpoint as well. But I think it's going to be a really interesting area and in stuff. Yeah, that was that was really helpful. And um hopefully it's been helpful
1: for for mm-hmm. for the viewers and listeners to go a little bit deep on some of these policy documents. I know that's been um a lot of what we've been doing recently. Um mm-hmm. I, I find making the videos really, really helpful and you yeah, know, and watch, w- watching them as well. So hopefully people have found that useful to get up to speed with the with the letter while they've been doing their Mm ironing or going for their jog or whatever they've been up to while they've been listening to us
0: Mm -hmm. um so if you do have any questions feel free to check them in the chat i know we've got some other live viewers what joining us and stuff and then and more than happy to try and answer what we can just whilst we wait to see if we do get any further questions and stuff come in um ss 23 again mentioned about my kind of thing that i talk a lot about is caffeine use and stuff can you actually code caffeine intake I don't think you can actually i've not seen a code for it i just tend to raise it with discussions and it's particularly with patients with sleep issues um i find it a real problem um and those with bladder issues um, particularly frequency and stuff you know um working in the city nottingham the number of patients who come to me saying oh, i'm peeing all the time and wake up at night to pee when i actually count how many cups of tea and coffee they have i'm like well yeah about six times the amount i do so that might be why you're having problems do we need to look at that and stuff but hey I,
1: I I can certainly support your um, assumption there around around that correlation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I hit the coffee, I have to uh, sometimes interrupt meetings to go to the toilet. Mm-hmm. Those people who work closely with me will be aware of that behavior, a quirk much of,
0: much of mine. Andy. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, so thank you, everybody, for your time. We hope you really enjoyed this stream. And this type of content, as Andy mentioned, we've kind of tended towards doing more of these reviews of the documentation and the, and the and information we get from NHS England and other resources and stuff to try and help explain these to you as part of our live sessions as well as kind of update you all the changes that are happening in, in general practice. That's kind of why we do these digital primary care updates for the publast and stuff. And um, Next week, we're going to be giving us some your, our recorded content. Um, so in particular, it's likely to be a supporting tool for our conference um, just because that's a few days afterwards. Again, if you want to join us for the System 1 Facebook users group, definitely sign up. It's going to be absolutely amazing. I'm so looking forward to this one. If I'm being honest, um, I'm working really hard with uh, our partners and stuff to make sure this is an amazing, amazing conference. And I really genuinely believe the content from this is going to absolutely change people's way that they do things in practice and stuff. So I'm trying my best not to give away too many (laughs) information and stuff. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, System 1 have been really
1: great with with some of the innovations, you know, so far in the last six months that are really going to help us work um, in a, you know, remote fashion doing more um in a digital way and i'm excited to learn uh what more is to come from system yes yeah, so, at the so conference
0: just to give some of those headline topics so there's gonna be a massive update for the communication annex and information about that which has been real game-changing i know for many practices the link booking stuff so how you can help support patients booking automatically into appointments and things and um, use of air mid and patient engagement they've got you know, information to come from that looking at how you can use system one more effectively from pcn and ics levels as well and mobile working and if, if they have got this ready for the conference i think we're going to have some really really happy people out there in terms of the way that they can support them um, with you know additional ways of using system one from practice teams and that kind of stuff and that's just the system one content We've got dan's top tips as usual they're amazing. You know, um, uh, for those that don't know Dan, um, he's one of our System 1 Facebook user group members. He it basically is my guru for how to use System 1. So, um, and his top tip session is, is always, you know, if it was a physical room, I'm pretty sure it'd be standing room only, um, but thankfully it's not. So you can jump in and join in. Um, I'm doing a session for once, which is going to be weird. I, I'm going to give my shortcuts to so how to use System 1 more effectively. And we've also got some other community-based um, things as well. And then as I say, we've got loads of content from our sponsors that is designed to try and make your life easier using general pra- system one in general practice and just generally working general practice as well. So it gonna be a really, 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 really good event. I'm just- so how do how do they sign up, Gandhi? Where do they go? And um, so I'll put the link. <laughs> see I've forgotten to put the link, haven't I? You've not bra- got it ready. I've not got it ready. I've, <sighs> I've I've failed myself on this particular thing, haven't I? This time. Andy? Never mind. Show uh, show notes. But I'll be the, in show notes. It'll uh, definitely uh, be in the show notes. Absolutely, it will definitely be in the show notes. So you can link up from there. I'll put it in the comments shortly as well. Um, and just so that people can then get access to it and think, in fact, here we go. Let's do that now. So, first it's into the comments. There we go. And it is a banner. Let's stick it in right now. There we go. So, and you can see it coming up on the screen and things. So, if you do want to join us, feel free to do so. I guarantee you will not regret it. And if you can't make the whole thing, not a problem. We have the recordings for you. Yeah. And you will be able to access them for free as well once you've registered. So do make sure you jump in and join us and stuff. And we will promise you you're going to have an amazing conference experience and the opportunity to win some prizes as well. Because so you know what? That's how we roll. So, Andy, um, we are going to be back again at live in a couple of weeks' time. Hope everybody has a great time in the meantime. And as always, if you do have any comments or questions, feel free to let us know. More than happy to try and answer them as best as we can and stuff. And as always. At EGP Learning, we're here to help tech enhance your primary care and learning. We'll catch you in the next episode. Oh, hello there, EGP learner. I'm Dr Gandalf and I often get asked, what kind of resources do you have to try and help those using EMIS? Because you tend to do a lot more stuff for system one. And often I've really struggled to answer that question because let's be honest, I don't use EMIS on a regular basis. So therefore trying to help EMIS users is a little bit more difficult for myself. And that really made me feel, well, not great. So I kinda did something to try and help all those EMIS users out there. I went and had a chat with one of my colleagues, Dr. Mike from GP on the Move, and him and I have created a course that you can use to help you use EMIS so much better. That's right, if you use EMIS, but you wanna use it so much better, so much quicker, and in such a way that means you go home sooner, then check out our eMIS for Clinicians course. It's an online course that takes you through all the tips and tricks that Dr. Mike knows to try and basically mean you can go home quicker. That'd be a cool thing, wouldn't it? And guess what? It's currently on offer. So if you want to take advantage of this introductory offer and get access to it now, look at the links down below and check it out. Additionally, if you're a practice, network or wide area that wants more opportunity to use it, send me an email, egplearning at gmail.com. Let's see if we can help you out. And as I like to say, to tech enhance your primary care and learning. So we get back to it? Oh, and if you wanted one for System 1 users, well, you know I've got you covered, haven't I? Check out the Learn System 1 for Clinicians course, bit.ly slash s1 course.